Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Today we meet volunteers in Kiev and on the Poland-Ukraine border helping provide much-needed aid and supplies to those fighting on the front lines and those fleeing the violence. Three weeks since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, we look at the successes of Ukraine's military and the failures of Russia's, why Putin is voting the Murphy's Law of Combat, and what should lie ahead. We look at how rising food costs are helping drive inflation in Canada to its highest in decades, and why the war in Ukraine may need even higher food costs as that conflict finds its way into our grocery shelves. But first, a by-election win by United Conservative Party candidate and former Wild Rose Party leader Brian Jean sets up a new chapter in what is becoming a high-stakes political drama playing out in Alberta, one that could cost Premier Jason Penney his job. Let's start tonight with some high political drama unfolding in Alberta. Normally, provincial by-elections don't garner much interest at all, particularly outside the province in question. But what happened last night in Alberta is a notable exception. Former Wild Rose Party leader Brian Jean won Fort McMurray-Lac-Labiche in a landslide for Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party. Here's the catch. The new MLA vows to work to topple Kenney in a leadership review meant to take place in less than a month. Here's what can only be called an uncommon post-victory declaration by Jean. What I expect to do is to speak the voice that has been given me by the people of Fort McMurray, Lackawish, and a clear mandate from them. And I believe an overwhelming uh, mandate from the people of Alberta who want a change in leadership and a renewal of the UCP. Gene says the party's lost its way under Kenny and is doomed to defeat in the next election if Kenny is still the party leader. So game on, as the old political saying goes. Two bitter rivals now under one political tent and probably not for too long. Could this spell the end of Jason Kenney, not by Alberta's voters, but from within his very own party? Joining me to look more into this drama is Alberta Today legislative reporter, Catherine Grakowski. Catherine, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. I guess this wasn't unpre- unpredicted. We Chances were Brian Gita was going to win, but it sets up quite the tale. What exactly is going to unfold and what is Gene vowed to do? Well, Gene ran, as you mentioned, on an ex- explicitly anti-Kenny platform. He says that the UCP will lose to the NDP if Kenny stays on as leader. So while other candidates in the riding were out knocking on doors, he was actually mounting this counter campaign for the April 9th leadership review. He's He's been organizing bus rides to to get to Red Deer on April 9th for that in-person vote. He's been selling memberships. He, he but in his victory speech, he said, Hey, everybody, the the deadline to get your membership to vote in this leader leadership review is Saturday midnight. You gotta get your your uh membership right away. So he is just skipped skip past his own by-election, which he won handily, and it has launched this anti-Kenny campaign. So for those who don't know about this story, how bad is the bad blood between these two? Oh, well, this this goes back. They were caucus mates back in the uh, back in the Conservative Party federally. They both returned to Alberta. They um, uh, Gene as the leader of the Wild Rose Party, Kenny as the PC leader, and they agreed to come together after uh, the election defeat of the conservative dynasty 
um, to create this United Conservative Party to defeat the NDP. Uh, but who would who would lead this party? Uh, the the two men faced off against each other, and and when Jean lost to Kenny, uh, the the idea was Kenny basically said made it very very un, unwelcome for for Jean who accused Kenny of of cheating in this leadership race, doing doing anything to win, and so he he basically left he left politics after that, and. There's been bad blood ever since. And now he's back with a vengeance. So what does Jason Kenney do knowing that this is coming at him? Well, Jason Kenney is a very masterful organizer. And um, I mean, Gene's run against him before. He knows not to underestimate him. Um, So what Kenney has been doing, um, he has had staff go on leave from their government positions to work on his campaign he's been doing organizing behind the scenes he's he's touting the economic recovery the emergence from covid we've lifted the restrictions we've we're back our agriculture sector is back our tech sector is back so he's he's basically trying to trying to uh say we're we're doing what we're elected to do we're we're getting the jobs back we're getting the economy economy back we've lifted the covid restrictions so he's not he's not actually campaigning for for any upcoming election although that is another possibility i gather he's actually campaigning for his survival as leader of his own party he's he's campaigning for his life (laughs) so how does this happen so i gather the there is a leadership review meant to happen in red deer early next month uh what are we looking out for uh, so, so yes, as you mentioned, um, April 9th, Red Deer, there's going to be about 7,000 attendees and, and climbing. So this is huge. Like the founding of the party itself had about 3,000 attendees. And it's going to be an in-person vote, which caused a little bit of internal party drama because there were farmers who said, hey, we're going to be out on the fields in April. We can't do it then. Um so there's going to be this in in person vote as to whether to keep Jason Kenney on as leader. Now earlier on in January he had set that threshold at about a two thirds majority to stay on, but recently publicly he has said a majority of fifty plus one is all I need to stay on for the leadership. So it will sound, be it. it. It sounds like it, it doesn't sound like a very. Uh, fulsome mandate from your own party if you're at 50 plus one heading into an election. I mean, this does this risk really dividing the UCP heading into a future provincial election? And and that is the the other question. It's it's you've got uh, your caucus, you've got the party membership, and you've got the province you want to govern. And so far, he's managed to quell caucus dissent, but with Brian Jean. Uh, the return of Gene, it risks uh, splintering the party again into that Wild Rose and PC legacy factions. Um, so you have a budget coming up, which is a confidence vote. So if if you get enough support against against Kenny, then they could topple the budget and trigger an early election. You could have his caucus kicking him out. Um, if there's a leadership vote and he, he does not get the support of his party he could be kicked out 
but uh, what Kenny's trying to uh, posit himself as he was he was the great uniter, and that he is the one who can keep keep these two parties together and he's he's kind of tried to set up brian gene as this extreme type guy um um from the the wild rose party which was infamous for having a candidate uh the, the lake of fire controversy is what it's referred to as uh right. there's a candidate <laughs> yeah yeah well i i don't have too too much time unfortunately but i i could i could see he's trying to paint him into a corner a little bit uh what is rachel notley saying about all this so the ndp must be sitting back and enjoying the show for the time being the, rachel notley congratulated brian jean about an hour before the premier did it the premier didn't even call him from what i gather um but rachel notley there's been a shift in the NDP's tone, right? So before it was like, Kenny, you must resign for your terrible handling of COVID. But then there was the shift saying, actually, every single one of the UCP members is culpable in this. So what they won't say is that they actually really want Kenny to stay on as leader because then they have a chance of winning the next election. They're, they, they're not going to say that out loud, but um there's there's this chance that brian jean comes in or if there's a leadership vote somebody else could come in and in fact rejuvenate the party uh bring the ucp back to popularity and uh thwart the ndp's chance of reforming government i know we're just getting into what is the very interesting part of this drama but do you have any predictions uh and i won't hold you to them but do you have any predictions about how this might unfold in the next month or so i have learned enough to know not to prognosticate in alberta politics it could, there are so many ways it could go you could see a snap election you could see kenny coming with a super majority in his leadership vote you could see him resigning. Um, I, I will not make any any predictions. Well, Catherine Gakowski of Alberta today, thank you so much for uh, filling us in on what is no doubt going to be a very fascinating three weeks in uh, Alberta politics, as always. Thanks for having me. Well, all the diplomacy around this war in Ukraine continues. NATO defense ministers met in Brussels today, including Canada's Anita Anand, agreeing to provide more aid to Ukraine. Here's what Secretary General of NATO Jens Stoltenberg had to say on what was decided. Today, ministers agreed that we must continue to provide significant support to Ukraine, including with uh, military supplies, financial help and humanitarian aid. But the reality of war on the ground, we know, is that a lot of supplies haven't made it there yet. That in places like Kyiv, they're struggling to make do with what they have and what they can get on short notice. An army of volunteers has come together to try to help in any way possible. One of them, Les Kimchuk, joins me now from Kyiv. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, yeah, thank you. Thank you for this. I know you've had, again, another tiring day. And now you're under curfew, I understand. But but what have, what have your days looked like? What have you been doing? Uh, so I'm volunteering. Uh, I'm getting supplies, mostly in medical first aid kit supplies to our soldiers and uh, people in Kiev because nobody was really prepared for such uh, huge war. It's open war in, in Ukraine now. And uh, a lot of people uh, suffering, a lot of, a lot of died and... Uh, and we we just need a lot of uh, medical supplies too to save lives. That's that's what I'm doing. I'm just 
getting all that supplies from Europe, from from USA as well, and um, and delivering in and um, just giving people uh, and, um, and just um, making giving the information how to use it and 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 cetera and cetera. Right. So so you're sourcing these things yourself. Yeah. I, I started with myself doing it myself, but now I have a, a kind of a web of peers uh, surround me and we're doing it together. It's not, not like an NGO because we didn't have time or I don't know anything to, to make it an NGO, but it's just our initiative, my friends and me. Um, actually, um, I was studying in Ohio University in say. Right. two weeks ago <laughs> right so before before it started yeah and i came came back with some supplies to ukraine i was like thinking maybe should i take something with me uh i i thought maybe my help my volunteer help will be additional here but it appeared that this is essential help uh, i mean uh, nobody was prepared and my supplies, my medical supplies was really, really, really important for everybody. So I know that that's what I'm going to do. What I, That's what I'm going to be doing next during all this being in Kiev. Just try to provide those medical supplies that are needed. I mean, you're right. Two weeks ago, you were studying in the U.S. and here you are now back home on the front lines. It must be, it must be mind-boggling to figure out to be in that situation and but but obviously you found a place where people need help yeah yeah that's what i do actually uh i had like i had no time to think about my decision so it was um so it was like really intuitive to come back to ukraine because because of martial law i can't leave ukraine now till till this war will end what is day-to-day life like? I mean, you obviously know Kiev well. What is life like now? How much, I mean, I, I know how much it's changed, but what's it like just with, with the shelling and so forth? How dangerous does it feel? Well, we have sirens every one every hour, thing, and yeah. um, it means that we have to hide in shelter uh, because this morning they bombed uh, a place near me like one kilometer like half a mile from my place um and uh, i heard that um, noise so i heard that sound of bombing this night i woke up it was was really scary actually but uh but sometimes you kind of you kind of used to it because it's weekend you have to work being a volunteer you're not just hiding in shelter you're i'm not it's a civilian anymore i mean i'm I'm already involved in 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 this process of defending kiev i would say so that's why i'm still like driving from one place to another from with supplies calling to people different people lots of new people all the time, everybody's thinking of something, like searching for tourniquets, first aid kits, bandages, chest seals, etc. I'm trying to help them. I'm trying to uh, to just um, to to write down their names and just to find out like where where I can find all that supplies. And um, then I call to some people in Europe or in USA and. Uh, buying supplies finding money oh my god it's so much so much work to do because i already spend uh, 
all my savings on on, on this. So now I'm crowd crowdfunding right. to help people. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I don't know whether you had any experience in doing anything like this before, but obviously you've had to learn very quickly how to source things, how to pay for them, how to get them delivered, how to deliver them. Oh yeah, I'm 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 just basically a media person. I was a journalist before that. I was a journalist, but I did all my media communication work that I could uh, to spread a word about this war. But after that, I found out that I'm not already useful. And uh, I mean, I was useful, but not as much as I wanted to. So I started this. It was really, I mean, natural. I never planned that this to do this. I never like I had nothing to do with medicine before this, but now I know a lot already. <laughs> <laughs> how much is how much need is there? I mean, honestly, we we don't know. I, obviously, when it comes to the what we see, the images of what's going on around Kiev. <laughs> We don't know how much need there is for medical supplies, but clearly there is a big need. So, yeah, there's a lot of people in Ukraine and in Kiev, especially uh, a lot of people left, but still it's 2 million people in Kiev uh, still being here. Um, at the same time, as I said, we are a peaceful country, we peaceful European country, like geographically middle of Europe. And nobody was prepared for the war in 21st century. So, like, people, you know, like regular civilians, and they know nothing about how to give the first aid or something. Um, so, it's a huge need. Huge need. Moreover, all that um, help from uh, U.S. government, from AU, it's really, really great. But at the same time, it's really slow because of... Uh, because of you know government um, processes uh, you have to buy all that you have to buy all that trucks with the supplies and then all the supplies is traveling from one country to another all the trucks trucks are standing on the border for some times and etc but all our like people they need the supplies like right now while i'm talking with you Right. So, so supplies. I mean, it's, it's already it's already sixteen days of war, but we still need all that basical stuff. I mean, this is, and we're still waiting for all this um, humanitarian help from other countries. And as you know, it's like two weeks ago they already said that they will give us this humanitarian help, but like physically, where is it? I mean, all that money. It's really great to have that money, but you can't treat people with the money. You can't protect your country with the physical money you have to buy something to protect you have to buy something to to um to 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 treat and you have to deliver it to people it right. takes some time but we don't need don't have that time unfortunately well let's come check i wish you the best of luck thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight thank you so much for for this conversation <laughs> This number just keeps growing. Uh, there's actually a website you can go to, a UN website that estimates the number of people that have fled Ukraine. It's up over 3 million now in just three weeks. More than half of them have arrived in Poland. We heard yesterday from Don Bowser, a Canadian working in Poland, uh, saying that international organizations have not been as present on the ground as you might expect. In fact, he was saying you see very little sign of them at all. Instead, the work of welcoming and trying to orient new arrivals has mainly been left to local organizations. And my next guest represents one of them. Dominika Halewska works for Caritas Poland and has spent days on the Ukrainian border 
and she joins me now. Dominica, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Good, good evening. We've been reading so much about just the sheer number of people crossing over from Ukraine into Poland. I think it's above 1.5 million now. Uh, how 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 much better is the situation at the border or how much more organized has the situation at the border become to be able to handle just this huge influx of people? I would say it is. it changed a lot. It changes every day. And actually, whoever was on the border even one day, it is very visible that if you go there one morning in the evening, you might see totally different situation because people crossing the border, they do not do it um, like uh, in some constant way. So one time there are a lot of refugees coming from Ukraine. Second day, there is there is no one and some certain reception points. However, what I've seen that a lot of solidarity among people who from the first day, even local communities started to cook soups, organize tents to help, organize clothes, places to sleep, opening houses. I think the situation changes because from what we see at the beginning, people were quite people coming from Ukraine, they were quite organized and they knew where they want to come. They usually had some relatives or family, um, both in Poland and in other countries of Europe or even not Europe, but they were they were quite conscious where they go. What we see now is that more and more people are coming without any idea, just running away from the war. So that's changing for sure. And here uh, also the challenges for humanitarian organizations, also for us as Caritas, um, those challenges are changing because at the beginning um, it was more about um, organizing proper transport, safe transport for those people, also organizing a warm place to stay, organizing um, warm meal and, and tea. And we saw, for example, that people were coming from the luggages. They needed, they didn't need any clothes, usually or rarely ever. And we see more and more people coming who need who need more from us, actually. So, so this is really um, still a challenge. And I think that this energy of solidarity and people will stay with us for longer because that is a long process, even in front of us right now. That's very interesting that you mentioned it that way, because I, I guess what you're describing is that in the early days, those who knew that they had a place to go if they left Ukraine left. Now those who have nowhere to go and probably would have rather, under any circumstances, probably would have wanted to stay home, have now started crossing the border with nowhere uh, to go. How do you help them? How, how much more difficult is it to help people who don't know what lies ahead for them? I think for now we we still we still have a lot of places to show them where to go. Um, but anyway, people are talking more and more about some more complex um, more complex answer for this question: how to help. Like uh, there are many countries very willing to help, and also I think that's the role of. Um, not only Caritas, we do it among our community. We discuss with international Caritas how can we provide help from other countries as well. But I think that that the same situation is um, up to government and to every country that tries to help, like to find the way and solution. How has it been for you personally, Dominica? I mean, I know you work in this in this field, but but being at the border as you have been, what's it been like? To, to actually be there, what have you witnessed, and what do you remember? What is your? What are your memories of, of of who you've dealt with? There were a lot of very hard and dramatic situations. I mean, first of all, people who already already crossed the border 
I'm very happy to see that they are finally safe. And I feel that they are safe here in Poland, mostly. And they finally, after many hours of long, this, um, like, difficult and uh, exhausting uh, travels they finally have a warm place to stay in our tents we call it even tents of hope in caritas because we felt that this is the tent that really gives them hope that they are finally okay in here so we gave we were giving warm meals uh, sandwiches tea and i saw how those simple things are really important in a life. And these are things that we usually have every day. And it is so obvious, but for those people, it was not obvious. And they were very much appreciating our help and what was done in there. Uh, I saw a lot of very strong women and children who were, um, who were coming and they were really, really strong and really having hope that the better, that let's say that the better tomorrow will come, that their country will be finally free and they will come back. So this is what I've heard and what I've seen, but also some very strong examples of people that were very lost, some elderly people, people with special needs or very small children, like newborn children that um, that were, for example, sitting many, many hours in trains or, uh, or elderly people that were waiting in queues for, for hours, freezing actually to get to Poland. And yeah, hopefully they are they are here and they are safe. And I feel that the that this is this is really good for them. But anyway, uh, despite the solidarity, which is heartwarming, I felt also that uh, that this is just not fair. What's happening in there? Yeah, I mean, it no must, thought, yeah. go ahead. It happened. Yeah, I just feel that no one thought it will happen. And everyone says so that it's not that. It's 21st century. We even didn't think that it will become that the world will become so close to us. And I think that is why we all feel so motivated to help. And this is really heartwarming. And I hope that this energy will last for longer because we say that, uh, yeah, it's not a quick run. It's like a marathon. So we marathon. So we need to be ready to help for, for really for longer, for many weeks, which will come for now. Dominic, I was reading an article, I think, in a newspaper late last week about just the sheer number of, of orphans that your organization has, has tried to help and just how difficult it is. Can you explain a bit to, to our listeners uh, just what the, how, many, how many kids there are and how, how many, what kind of challenge that is to you? We as Caritas decided to help um, and we declared 2,000 places for orphan children from Ukraine. And the first hundred, let's say, I think around 900 for now, but this number changes every day, were already evacuated to Caritas local places. And what we've seen that, uh, first of all, the evacuation of children took place in a very demanding conditions. The war situation means that nothing can be planned for before uh, beforehand. And uh, people in Ukraine, coordinators who organized this evacuation, were evacuating and operating in life-threatening conditions. So we've heard hard stories about how dangerous was that, that for them. But also, um, we are happy to see that the, the, those children arrived to Poland. They arrived via train. And they are um, our local coordinators from Caritas. They pick them up from the train, take care of them and bring them to the safe place in Poland. Also giving uh, a place to stay. And the, the, the whole, the whole, let's say, 
uh, yeah, care, the whole care about them, whatever is needed. Dominika Haleska, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, most of us have had a bit of a shock when tallying up our grocery bills these days. So the inflation numbers for February from StatsCan, including the Consumer Price Index, were hardly a surprise. Canada's inflation rate hit a new three-decade high in February as consumers paid more for gasoline and groceries. We know that. The CPI was up 5.7% in February. Food prices rose 7.4% year-over-year last month, the largest increase since May of 2009. Here's what Royce Mendez, head of macro strategy at Desjardins Securities, had to say. Unfortunately, this is not surprising for us. This is exactly what we forecast. Uh, But it's no less painful for households in Canada when prices are rising at almost 6% over the past year. If it feels like everything is getting more expensive, it's because it is. Royce Mendez of Desjardins Securities, and that could be further hit by a work stoppage at Canadian Pacific Railways, potentially disrupting the movement of goods in this country, such as grain and potash, mostly potash, mostly done by rail, at a time when commodity prices are soaring too. Here's what Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe had to say today. Catastrophic on on supply chain issues, bringing bringing, uh, supplies into our communities, into our province, um, bringing uh, our products out of our province to other areas of Canada, uh, grain going into feedlots, for example, across the province and in uh, the southern U.S., as well as uh, ultimately uh, all of the exports uh, that we are sending uh, to other areas of the world. Scott Moe, Saskatchewan's Premier, about a potential work stoppage at uh, CP Rail. Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan announced tonight that CP Today gave notice of their intention to lock out employees on March 20th, that 72-hour notice. The parties are still negotiating with the help of federal mediators, so stay tuned on that front. Add in the war in Ukraine, add it all together, and it is quite the picture for food prices in this country and global food security around the world. Joining me now to discuss that is Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor in food distribution and policy in the faculties of management and agriculture at Dalhousie University in Halifax. He joins me from Tampa in Florida, where he's a visiting professor uh, this year. Welcome to the show, Sylvain. My pleasure. I guess not a lot of surprise in what we saw today, but certainly food prices, as we expected, um, on the pointy edge of these inflation numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Well... I was actually expecting a 7.5 for February. Uh, What we got was 7.4, so I wasn't far off. So I wasn't surprised to see uh, 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 numbers that I saw this morning. Uh, when When you dive into all of the numbers, you can see that commodity prices really have started to to impact food retail prices. So coffee is up uh, 8% in the last two months. Uh, flour is up 12% in the last two months. Uh, so that's one sign. The other sign, of course, is is uh, global food supply chains that have, have been impacted by the pandemic and everything we've seen the last two years. And so the center of the store is impacted clearly. I mean, peanut butter is up 4%. And people laugh when I mention peanut butter, but it, it, it it's a bit of a staple. It's a, it's a bit of an indicator as to how supply chains are impacting our ability to move products because peanut butter is priced the same in Canada over the last 20 years, but 
being up 4% in just two months, that's a sign. It's basically like the tide, Ben. I mean, if, yeah. if peanut butter is up, you're likely to see a lot of things go up over the next several months. Sylvain, I always you know, looked at The Economist's Big Mac Index, where they take the price of a Big yep. Mac at every McDonald's around the world, and that gives you an idea of what food prices are like in each of the regions. I guess peanut butter would be one of those staples. I didn't know it hadn't gone up in so long. So we're actually seeing the first real increases in the price of peanut butter in a while. Absolutely. I would say, so when you look at, because uh, often people are saying, oh, everything is up, everything is more expensive. I said, not really. If you look at peanut butter, tofu, mm-hmm. bananas, all priced the same. Uh, in the last 20 years, it's all priced the same. So not everything fluctuates. Every food product has its own story and its own dynamic. Uh, but overall, you can certainly point to specific factors that are impacting food prices like logistics. Fuel, of course, is a big factor uh, impacting food prices for the month of February. But overall, I think commodity prices will... Uh, really hit us hard. Uh, dairy is, has started to show uh, a sign that uh, th- things are changing there because milk is up 8% in just a month. So you can see that probably uh, cheese, yogurt, other dairy products will go up over the next several months. I was going to say, you, you mentioned that this was the end of the beginning. And I think after two years of pandemic, um, and, and certainly the way we've seen it reflect on our grocery shelves, which can be psychological, I gather, as well as re- realistic. Uh, but we have seen prices go up, uh, specifically, I think, at the meat counter, but also, as you mentioned, in the dairy counter. By the end of the beginning, what do you see happening in the future? I, I, I hate to say this, but I actually see the pandemic as being a bit of a dress rehearsal when it comes to food affordability in Canada. I think that, uh, that of course, uh, households have been challenged the last couple of years. It's been tough. Uh, prices have gone up. But uh, given what's going on right now around the world, I actually do see uh, a major shift. Um, so when you have a conflict, uh, hitting a place like the Ukraine and Russia, uh, you have to wonder how that will impact global markets. And uh, so the Ukraine is a top five uh, grain exporter. Russia is a top exporter around the world when it comes to grains. So uh, so the question, uh, can Canada actually cover the spread? Can, actually, uh, can Canada cover uh, that gap created by by this conflict? And the answer is no, uh, for two reasons. One, well, uh, Canada, uh, well, needs mother nature to, in order to produce, uh, well, and, and mother nature has failed us a few times the last few years, especially last year, last year was a disaster. The other thing, uh, our fertilizers, fertilizers are super expensive these days. And, and if you want to increase yields, in Canada, uh, you need to use fertilizers, and, and 50% of fertilizers used in the prairies come from either Russia, Belarus, or China. And uh, you know what's going on there. And so it's going to be very challenging for farmers to increase yields this year, even if Mother Nature cooperates. Have governments taken this seriously enough yet? I mean, we've seen some, you know, we hear a lot of a lot of talk about gas prices, uh, but not a whole lot of talk about food prices. And one would think that really food prices are where it's going to hurt people with fixed incomes or stretched incomes. It's going to hurt them the most. Absolutely. Well, you know, 
in America, in the United States, where I am right now, the food inflation rate is actually at 8.6%, which That's is astounding. much higher. Yeah, which is much higher. But here's the thing, Ben. In America, consumers here are are better tool to address uh, food, the impact of food inflation. Uh, you have a, a couponing culture here that is much more developed. You have competition. You have many options as a consumer. So you can navigate through higher food inflation rates very easily in America, not in Canada. I would say that a, a an 8.6% in America would probably equate to a 4 or 5% in Canada just because of, of, of our food distribution landscape, which is not as competitive. Uh, we're, we don't necessarily empower consumers all that much to, to, to save uh, through uh, the use of coupons and apps and things like that. So I, I, think, I think the government in Canada is expecting the industry to step up, uh, helping consumers, because I think there's going to be a growing number of consumers looking for options. So far, what we've seen in Canada is, is volume discounting. You need to buy, say, four lemons to get a better deal instead of just one. Well, it doesn't work for well over a third uh, of our households because a third of our households will only have one person or a couple with, with a fixed income. So you can see that really the promotional culture in Canada is not as sophisticated as it should be. This is something I know you're looking into, and I know you don't want to give away what you're about to report in your report uh, on couponing, Um, but is there any light at the end of the tunnel for Canadians in terms of how they adapt to these rising food costs by developing a more sophisticated couponing culture? Yeah, uh, we have concerns. I mean, there are several restrictions. I mean, it's, it's difficult to use coupons for a variety of reasons. And we'll dive into those reasons uh, next week. But really, I, I think as we see the food inflation rate rise this year, I think there's going to be a growing number of, of consumers who will show their, their discontent towards the industry. And I'm concerned about that because grocers uh, have done a fairly good job throughout the pandemic. And they do offer uh, high quality products to Canadians. But at the end of the day, food affordability is a challenge and, and, and more households are left behind. Uh, that's a problem for, for grocers. And so I, I, I think that's really going to the narrative around around rebates and promotions is going to change because if you go into a grocery store right now, uh, good luck finding anything on sale. It's very rare these days. Why? Because they're discouraged. Uh, the context is just not there to get companies to offer rebates right now. I'm speaking with Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy in the Faculties of Management and Agriculture at Dalhousie University in Halifax. He's in Florida. Uh, at this point. Uh, You did mention the war in Ukraine. I'm interested in digging a little deeper into that as far as its geopolitical or geo uh, agriculture impacts maybe. And we'll get to that uh, right after this short break. Stay with us. I'm back with Sylvain Chalabois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy in the Faculties of Management and Agriculture at Dalhousie University in Halifax. He's speaking to us tonight from Tampa in Florida. Um, Sylvain, you mentioned this earlier, but we know that Ukraine, Russia, often referred to as the breadbaskets of Europe, um, there will be an impact not only on food prices in our country, but also throughout the Middle East, North Africa. This could be, turn into something 
quite serious, you think? Oh, absolutely. I think it is turning into something quite serious. Um, um, our global food security is being is being challenged. Um, they do say that the Ukraine is the bread is Europe's bread basket. I actually think it's it's a bit of an inaccurate reading uh, of 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 Ukraine's role. Uh, it is the bread basket of two major regions, uh, the Middle East and Europe. And I think the Middle East will be hit first. In fact, we're hearing from uh, Europe uh, from uh, from Egypt and Syria. Um, telling the uh, the world community that uh, inventories are, are are low already and and because of last year's uh, harvest uh, in the northern hemisphere we saw droughts in Russia uh, Canada and the US floodings in in Europe in Germany in particular inventories are, are already very very low so there's no buffer and so I do expect uh, the world to be short uh, for a lot of commodities wheat corn, barley, I would say pulses, sunflower, and uh, a lot of people will will have to fight for whatever's left. And uh, so we are expecting, at least I'm expecting some civil unrest in some parts of the world. As far as North America goes, I, I don't believe it will happen because we do produce a lot of grains here, but we're not immune to um, to prices traded globally if a bushel of wheat is $12 US in Ukraine it's going to be $12 here in Canada and so the entire food system here will have to absorb that and when you look at you know the refugee crisis coming out of Ukraine uh, there is demand there obviously for emergency aid um and then yep. shortage we have shortages in North Africa i mean if if listeners forget you know, food prices are part of what sparked the Arab Spring a, a decade ago now, yep. rising food costs. So there's such a close tie between food scarcity and political instability. And I guess that's what you're seeing. That's the wave you're seeing coming at us. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, this is, uh, I mean, Vladimir Putin's gift to the world is, is, uh, is a, an ag commodity super cycle uh, and which will lead to uh to social unrest and and some 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 issues around the world beyond the conflict we see in the ukraine unfortunately and uh so if he had if he wanted to pick the right time he he did uh, from an agri-food perspective he absolutely and of course, don't forget that Russia, uh, I would say, can rely on on China. China, uh, of course, I would say it doesn't necessarily have allies. It has clients and customers, and it sees Russia as a customer. And 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 often we forget this to to to, to we forget that China will. Uh, will remain influential, will buy commodities, not just for China, but for the world, and it will trade. So I don't think Russia is, is, is concerned about its own harvest. Uh, it will grow wheat and probably will sell its surpluses to China. Uh, as far as Ukraine goes, they're, they're on their own, which is really a travesty, I think. Um, so... I do believe that uh, this year is not going to be easy for many, many nations. And, and, and to be honest, Ben, I actually think as Canadians, just to have a chance to buy something at a grocery store uh, is something that we should be thankful for. Absolutely. 
it's something we don't, you did mention this earlier. Um, and I didn't realize this, that fertilizer uh, supply, because we do produce fertilizers in Canada, obviously, but fertilizer supply, I didn't realize how much of it came from Russia and China and Belarus. What kind of predicament does that put our farmers in here? Well, so yeah, absolutely. Now you you mentioned earlier that uh, what can governments do uh, to to make uh, things better uh, in Canada, where you know we we talk on both sides of our mouths, really. So we we had our minister of agriculture uh, talking at the G seven saying. Uh, claiming that we should uh, keep our borders open, we should continue to focus on trades, which is which is absolutely true. I think uh, she she made some very very important remarks. But at the same time, in Canada, we are we have uh, supply management, which is a very highly protective regime around dairy, poultry, and eggs, and we have also Campatex, which is a a a a um, cartel for potash really uh it is uh it colludes it, it allows mosaic and nutrient to collude and increase fertilizer prices uh and it will inflate prices it will uh, it has always increased fertilizer prices around the world uh and it and this year is no exception and so if if farmers are complaining about higher fertilizer prices well, Canada is partly to blame here. And Campotex is endorsed and sanctioned by the Saskatchewan government. And so there, there are things we can do. And, in it, and to add to all this fun is a potential CP rail strike that could actually start tonight as well. So there's lots of things going on there that perhaps can be addressed by our governments, whether it's at the federal level or at the provincial level. It certainly feels like geopolitics is going to be spotted on our grocery shelves um, for at least the next little while. Sylvain Chalabois, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure.